Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is uh, December the 5th, 2016. This is episode 1910 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Monday, Monday, Monday. Um, it's kind of a gloomy Monday here. It's raining, and it's not the kind of rain where like... You at least get the satisfaction of a good thundering rainstorm or a heavy pour. We got that like misty, nasty, it's good for the earth, but it's just dreary and it never feels like it's daytime. And it's, uh, everything gets muddy and the dogs bring the mud in and the geese get on the porch and crap. It's just, yeah, at least it's rain though. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be, ha I'm happy for it. Um, unfortunately, our friends in uh, Tennessee, are getting some rain, but no, don't seem to be getting this like steady, ongoing rain and, and, and low winds. They seem to be getting rain here and there. But wind gusts up to 60 miles an hour. That is not good when you're fighting firefighters. So to all of those affected by this, um, I, I, my thoughts, and I'm sure the thoughts and prayers of many Americans are with you, and uh, to those fighting these fires, stay safe, watch your back, take care of each other, because... Uh, It's a dangerous thing, and we appreciate the service that you provide. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Well, it is a Monday. Monday, Monday is the day that we take listener feedback. These are emails that you send to Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. That would be Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. The way to make sure that I see that email is make sure you put the acronym TSPC, TSPC, Tango Sierra Papa Charlie, in the subject line. Then you can put anything else you want. That will tell me it is for the show or it pertains to show business. And that means I will at least look at it. It doesn't mean it will be on the show. There's no way I could get every email I get on the show. But it will at least get looked at. And some of them, you know, this is the reason to send me stuff. Everything I send Jack stuff all the time. And the jerk never puts my stuff on the air. Well, I usually am picking between about 150 to 250 emails. They get kind of into the folder by the end of the week to be looked at. Like, I can't do them all. I can cover maybe, you know, five to ten at a show. But a lot of them, if you don't follow me on Facebook and Twitter, you may not realize it. You may have been sending me stuff that goes up there all the time. I put all kinds of stuff out on social media because it comes from this audience to let you guys discuss it. And when it really takes fire, then sometimes it gets nominated and kind of pushed back onto the show. So, anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Well, <clears throat> I've been saying for a long time, one day there'll be a grocery store. And in that grocery store, you will walk in, you will put stuff in your cart or your bag, and you'll walk out. That's all you will do. You will never even go to a cash register. You won't pre-order anything. The store will just know. It'll just know what you bought and charge you for it. And, of course, I'm a crazy, redneck, hippie duck farmer. What the hell do I know about the future? The store is here. We'll tell you all about it today. I'll actually play a little news piece or a little press release kind of thing on it, and it's being put out by... You guessed it, dun-dun-dun, Amazon.com. Yes, not just to be ordered from online anymore. Uh, a guy in North Texas is looking for someone to split a pallet of barley uh, with for fodder or feed. Uh, that'll be like a five-second thing. Just you know, If anybody's interested, I'll, I'll tell you how to get in touch with me so you can get in touch with him. Uh, an update on our prior segment on emergencies, hospitals, and ambulance service. I got a whole bunch of feedback saying you're wrong or your, your caller was wrong about the way this works. And the answer is yes and no. And we'll talk more about that today. Um, we will have a little story on how over-reliance on your preps. I don't need to worry because I have extra. Can turn around and 
bite you in the ass if you're not careful to make sure that, well, when you use a prep, you, you put it back. I've been asked for my thoughts on General Mattis for Secretary of Defense. I'll tell you what I think, though it's not a deep thought because I don't pay that much attention to politics anymore, uh, especially at the level of getting down to the individuals. But I actually do have a pretty high opinion of General Mattis from what I can see. Um, another take on the remote cow-calf operation that Jeff Lawton talked about. I got a guy that he does this for a living, runs you know hundreds, maybe thousands ahead a year, and uh, says, you better be careful with what you're doing. And I want to put out all sides of all views, so I'll bring that on today. Uh, I also have a question like, hey, Jack, I'm looking for a gas blowback airsoft clone of a gun, and we'll tell you what it is when I get to it, but there isn't one. So I'd like to answer the question with, here's where you get one, but one doesn't exist. So I'm going to talk about, like, if you are a person that carries or uses a gun, and they don't make a airsoft clone for it, and you want to use airsoft for training, how to go about figuring out how to do something anyway. And then I have various listeners' thoughts on UBI, or universal basic income, if it ever happens. Quite a few different views on this. Um, I am very happy. I want to tell you something before we get into the rest of the show that I'm very happy about with UBI. UBI, or universal basic income, which would be everybody gets a check every every month for existing, is a very polarizing topic because there's people that think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. There's people that think it's pure pure old-fashioned socialism. There's people that think it'll bankrupt the country, which I happen to agree with. If it was done with the current economic paradigm, it would bankrupt the country. Uh, but it's very polarizing. It causes a lot of people to like flip out and go ape shit and yell at each other and call anybody that talks about it a, a socialist or a communist. And when I've talked about this, I've always said, listen, I am not saying... I want this to happen. I'm saying this might happen, and what might happen? How might it work if it did, folks? Thank you. I haven't got a single piece of hate mail on this. I haven't got a single hateful comment on this. I haven't gotten anybody flipping out on me for talking about. It. I haven't got anybody like saying you need to turn in your anarchist card because I'm not speaking to it as I'm advocating for this. I'm speaking to it as well. Since we don't get to decide what really happens, because that's an illusion, and this looks like it might be the way that the wind's blowing, what does it mean if it happens? So thank you for giving me the courtesy of believing me, because most topics that I talk about like this that are that polarizing, even when I am diametrically opposed to the idea, when I give it an open discussion, I get attacked. So thank you. Thank you very much. It, it's It's refreshing. I, I really do appreciate it. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1910 because the episode is 1910. I have Coolidge's Persistence and the Pitfall of Genius. And I have Giving Anarchy a Bad Name. And I have Notable Births. Those notable births are Mother, Mother Teresa will help the poor in India and be elevated to sainthood in September 2016. Jane, I'm going to stop because Mother Teresa, I've actually used her name quite a bit recently in something. I am not necessarily a, a guy that wants to jump on the Trump train or anything like that, but I do feel like the entire media and the entire left is just ridiculous with Donald Trump. And what I've said recently, every time I happen to see real news, that's actually you know the real fake news. <laughs> uh, some of you get that, some of you don't. But um, they uh, they'll be talking about Trump. Well, he's appointed so and so to his cabinet. Oh my God, he's a Nazi. He's a fascist. Whatever. What I've said recently is if, if Mother Teresa was, was, was resurrected and Donald Trump put her on the cabinet, the left would go apeshit and say she's Hitler. That's how bad it is. Anyway, Jane Wyatt will play Spock's mother in Star Trek. She will also become Ronald Reagan's first wife. And 
Momofuko Ando, the patron saint of bachelors, he invents top ramen and cup of noodles. One of the inventors spread the glory. In other news, the Earth passes through Halley's Comet's tail. The comet comes within 13 million miles. No one turns into a zombie. Frankenstein's monster is released. The monster has no name except in relation to its creator. This is his first horror film. It runs. This is the first horror film. It runs 16 minutes. And the first infrared photographs are published by Robert Wood. That infrared glow around plants is now called the Wood Effect. When you look at infrared photography of plants, it's pretty beautiful. And it makes me wonder, you know, how would we might view the world differently if we saw in that spectrum? I'm just saying. Look up Wood Effect Photographs Plants on Google and get some images and see what I'm talking about. Anyway, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to read both today because I just can't pick one. I just can't because I have thoughts on both of them. So just consider the show starting and this is kind of a segment. And yeah, okay. So Coolidge pit Persistence and the Pitfalls of Genius. Nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talents will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determinations are omnipotent. A proverb often attributed to Calvin Coolidge, but he never said it. At this time, silent Cal Coolidge is mayor of Northampton. He won with a margin of less than 150 votes by convincing the Irish to vote Republican. He's a farmer's son, so he knows when a man is watering the milk. Think about that one. He knows when a man is watering the milk. Yeah, okay. He can listen, take criticism, and joke with a common man because he is one. He refuses to attack his opponent. He just keeps plugging away, and it all works, just barely. The above anonymous proverb appears this year as filler for newspapers. It is often attributed to Coolidge because one day he will become famous for his persistence and win the presidency. My take by Alex Shrug, the echo of the proverb, genius is no guarantee of success, is not magic. It is a measure of capacity to absorb facts and make connections. It is like drinking a large glass of water in one smooth motion. The genius drinks in knowledge, but only if he is thirsty. If he does not care, or if he is lazy, his genius will not help him. The person with the average capacity will drink in knowledge in smaller gulps, but with discipline and desire, he is almost as fast and smooth as the genius. Discipline and desire are the keys. I have bested people smarter than myself because I have persisted. When there is a downturn in the economy, I refuse to participate. When the job market becomes saturated, I don't cry about it. I move to where I am needed. I tell my children, keep moving forward. Whatever you do, don't stop. Don't wait over long for someone to create your future, create your own. This is an interesting take for me because I think that genius gets lumped into two things, academic genius and true genius. And what I mean by that is it's interesting that one of the lines in this this you know proverb is you know the education will not the world is full of educated derelicts. I, I've often said that education is proof of nothing. I've met many educated idiots. So I've met many people, I wouldn't call them geniuses, but they have pedigrees of knowledge. And I've met many people that you would think are just, you know, some redneck farmer, and I'm not speaking of myself, where when you look at the engineering that they've done, I'm, the, the engineering I've seen done by straight-up farmers is unfreaking believable. It's unbelievable. And so I, I think that we have to be careful with words like genius. And, and people that can just spout out a lot of facts aren't necessarily geniuses. To me, the genius is someone that has the intelligence to use action and then to take that action or to take that into an action that actually has the effect that they're looking for. From 
whatever angle they end up in. The, the person that's able to look at something where everybody else goes, there's no way out of this, and they find a way out of it. Or there's no way to get this done, and they find a way to get it done. But I will say that, that Alex is correct with the fact that if a genius is bored by something, or even if just a smart person is bored by something, and they have to do it, the average intellect can actually best them if they're dedicated to doing it. Because most people that are really smart, what happens is, if I don't give a shit, I don't care. And I don't care that I don't know because you haven't shown me why I need to know, so I don't care. And uh, there's there is something to that on both sides of it. But I actually think that's the solution to untapping the genius in all of us. I believe that every human being is a genius. Just what are they a genius at? And, and the problem is we try to measure everybody with the same yardstick. And it's very, very flawed logic. It's very flawed logic. Because I've seen people that can carve wood in, in ways that would make um, an artist, you know, one of the master artists jealous. But they, they never graduated school. And, and, and frankly, even if they would have really tried, would have struggled. So, so let's be careful how we use the word genius. Now, giving anarchy a bad name. I just wanted to cover this one, too, because it's kind of short. And you guys know me. I, I, I dig this stuff. Assassination has become a method of choice for political change. Many assassins claim to be anarchists, so anarchy is becoming a synonym for murder. Let's hit the highlights. 1888, anarchists derail a train carrying Tsar Alexander III. His injuries lead to death. 1890, union members read... Read as the anarchist Italians are suspected of murdering the chief of police in New Orleans. 1892, the chairman of Carnegie Steel is shot by an anarchist for union-breaking policies. 1901, President McKinley is shot by a man who recently attended a lecture on the virtues of anarchy. That's kind of thin. Uh, 1903, Alexander I of Serbia is shot by the Black Hand. This is the same group that will assassinate Archduke Ferdinand and kick off World War I. Black Hand was a mixed group sometimes labeled nihilists. It may have been a nihilism, it may have been nihilism rather than anarchy that was driving those assassinations. Nihilism frees one from all limits, including the limit of caring whether someone lives or dies. Unfortunately, the public at the time associated assassinations with anarchy and unions such as Wobblies, industrial workers of the world. I know it's difficult to imagine, but people were polarized at the time, believing they had the final truth and everyone else was messing up the world and preventing us from making it right. Yeah, I know it's crazy. Thank God we're a lot smarter today, aren't we? Yes, somewhat smarter. First, I, I do want to think that little bit of irony that Alex is throwing out there, you know, we're smarter today because it sounds so much like today. We are smarter today. We are. Uh, not a lot, but... I think people from this time would be shocked if you went back to 1910 and talked to the average, relatively intelligent person on the street about the way they thought things should be. It, it, it would really shock you. There is some seductive lying in the world of nostalgia. Always be careful with nostalgia, especially nostalgia for things you weren't around to see. Um, but what this makes me think of it ties to the other one with, with genius. So I know a man who is a genius. I mean, a certified genius. He's also a good personal friend of mine. And uh, we were discussing anarchy one day, and this is exactly what he brought up. But anarchists throw bombs, and anarchists started World War One, and anarchists... I, I said, where, where do you get this? Well, I learned it in school. Okay. How much time did you ever spend on this subject? Well, very little. It was an honest answer. Very little. You know, it's a segment here and there, but since I'm... You know, he didn't say it this way, but the reality is this is one of these guys, 
He's like me. He learned something. If he actually found it interesting, it's filed in the computer cells, and you can ask him about it, and he can tell you about it, whatever he learned. But you learned what you learned. So it was never interesting enough that he dug deeper into it. And when I explained what anarchy is to him, he said, well, that's really me. So even the genius can have perception bias. Just something to keep you on your toes. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day before we get into your emails for today's show. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Okay, so I have been kind of overwhelmed today with emails, uh, comments on the blog, uh, shout-outs on Facebook, uh, with something relatively new, and it's another one of these Jack was right. Now, I want to say something here because there are people that get irritated with me for saying, see, I was right. Well, um, I don't say it is like a victory lap dance or something like that, a victory lap dance, a, a victory dance or a victory lap, either a victory lap dance. That sounds really twisted, especially if it was me doing it. That ew, it even grosses me out. But anyway, um I don't say it like, oh, look, see how smart I am. It's because my job is to point to the things that are going to disrupt or enhance your life in the future and, and tell you how you might be prepared to deal with them. And that means that next week or next month, I'm going to tell you some radical shit I've never said before. And I'm going to say this is something that I've now picked up on from all of my research and all the things that I do, and you should start thinking about how it might impact your life. And if I'm going to do that every day, I want you to think, well, maybe he's right. And I always say, I, I can't guarantee you this, but this is what I think is going to happen. And then there's times when I go, this is going to happen. There is no way this doesn't happen. This absolutely is going to happen. And I think by pointing that out, especially for new listeners, When you see how long maybe I've been banging a drum like that and it happens, you start to realize that when I when I break something out from the, oh, I think, or maybe, or probably, or most likely, and I say, this is going to happen, then you should assume that it most likely will, right? I can still be wrong. Anybody that ever thinks it can't be wrong is an insufferable ass, and I will have nothing to do with them, including myself. But... When I get to a point where I'm saying that, I, in my heart, believe that I am right. With the, with the, with the, with the still a little bit of humility accepting that, well, I, I could I could screw this up. I, I did it with gas prices uh, eight years ago. It, and I think it's the only one I've ever said definitively, this will happen that hasn't. So this has now happened. What I've said, and this is going back at least four years, that one day you will go into a grocery store. You will grab your cart or your bag or whatever, and you will walk around the grocery store. You will throw all your shit in it. You will walk out the door. No one will think you stole anything because you didn't. You will be automatically charged for it. It will eliminate thousands, if not millions of jobs long term. 
the technology is here. All it takes is for somebody to put it in place. And once it's in place, once it's in place and people get a taste of it, they will love it. Because I want you to imagine, when you go grocery shopping, what is the one thing you hate the most about grocery shopping? And it's probably checking out. And if that could be eliminated, and you could go to store A or store B, and assuming you could afford either store, and one allowed you to just walk in, pick up your shit, and leave, which one would you go to? Well, I'd go to that one. I mean, everybody that's honest about that has always said that. But people say there's no way. There's too much potential for theft. It can't be done. Well, I'd like to play you uh, this little uh, public relations release from Amazon.com. Four years ago, we started to wonder, what would shopping look like if you could walk into a store, grab what you want, and just go? What if we could weave the most advanced machine learning, computer vision, and AI into the very fabric of a store so you never have to wait in line? No lines, no checkouts, no registers. Welcome to Amazon Go. Use the Amazon Go app to enter. Then put away your phone and start shopping. It's really that simple. Take whatever you like. Anything you pick up is automatically added to your virtual cart. If you change your mind about that cupcake, just put it back. Our technology will update your virtual cart automatically. So how does it work? We used computer vision, deep learning algorithms, and sensor fusion, much like you'd find in self-driving cars. We call it Just Walk Out Technology. Once you've got everything you want, you can just go. When you leave, our Just Walk Out Technology adds up your virtual cart and charges your Amazon account. Your receipt is sent straight to the app, and you can keep going. Amazon Go. No lines, no checkout. No, seriously. Um, even I usually don't get it that accurate. I mean, it literally is exactly what I've been saying is going to happen. And I think that's why I've gotten so much uh, email, comments, feedback, Facebook call-outs, uh, tweets, all this stuff. I've gotten just inundated with it. It must have been something that really got... I, I think it was actually released last week or maybe even earlier, but like it must have got some kind of big play today that people saw it. Um, it is going to be, the first store is going to open in January 2017 in Seattle, Washington. And it is, it is my belief that it will be the first of many, and it is, it is a couple different things. Number one, it is part of Amazon.com's desire to become the largest company ever. I don't think people really realize what Amazon's doing when you look at the totality of what they're doing. So Amazon has become eBay for new items, and as expensive as it is, it's not more expensive than eBay is to sell your goods and services on. Uh, it has become both a, a place for third-party sellers who do everything for themselves like eBay and a place for people who want to sell but don't want to do any work through what's called FBA or fulfilled by Amazon, which means... You own the inventory, 
You pay for it, you market it, you do everything, but yet it's on Amazon.com and they do all the work once the order comes in. They fulfill it, they send tracking, whatever. All you do is make sure that they stay in stock of your items. It is taking over the United States Postal Service to some degree. Uh, I, I can't remember what it's called now, but there's a service that is a lot like Uber for Amazon deliveries. You decide, I want to deliver Amazon items, you go sign up, you get vetted, uh, you pick stuff up and you drop it off, and that way they don't use the post service and you get paid basically by the job type of thing. So that they can, and, and right now they have, they're the reason that the United States Postal Service has deliveries on Sunday. It's just because of them. And they are using USPS to put the hurt on USPS. And now they're going to open brick-and-mortar grocery stores. And I think this is a brilliant move, and I'll tell you why. If Amazon was going to start opening up stores that competed with Walmart or Targets or whatever, with all of the stuff that Amazon already sells, all the, the durable goods, the non-consumables that Amazon already says, I would say I think somebody at Amazon has had a brain aneurysm, and they are on, on the road to ruin because they're destroying that very model. There are few things that people really want to go get, and there are certain things that the Amazon shipping model doesn't work the best for, and those are consumables. Uh, specifically, you know, your produce and things like that. If people are going to go to the store to get produce and dairy and things like that and meat anyway, um, and, and some of these things, like you can ship them just fine. You can ship ribeyes just fine. But you can't do it for free shipping on Prime or $4.95 for Prime Pantry because it has to be packed in ice or it has to be in dry ice. It has to be, you know, guaranteed overnight. All these other things. So certain goods, at least for now, we're still going to go to a place to, to buy them. And if you're going to go there to buy your, your meat and your dairy, you're probably going to go ahead and pick up your noodles and other stuff that you can ship while you're there, even though they do sell a lot of that stuff through Prime and Prime Pantry, and just regular Amazon. So it's genius. It's also, all the other grocery stores have had a shot at doing something like this, but any other chain, a Walmart, uh, a Kroger, an Albertsons, is going to have to buy this technology. They don't really have the resources to develop the technology. What Amazon did was use this exact same technology in their warehouses, And then develop the technology, now they're rolling it out to the consumer space. And, and I want to kind of point out the big hit that this is to employment in this country, because people don't get it. The grocery stores of America employ 2,670,250 people as of last year. 2.67 million. Assume, assume this replaces... 25% of those jobs, 25% of those jobs are replaced because of this in the next five years. And I think that's, I think even though it's like, oh, there's only one store and it's just a pilot, and this is going to roll fast, guys. Give it 10 years. 10 years to do half. If 10 years you do half, you're at 1.3 million jobs gone. Um. <laughs> Let me put that in perspective for you because a lot of people don't get it. The largest employer in the United States is Walmart. They employ 2.1 million people. Now, you can say um, you, whatever you want um, about Walmart, but 
2.1 million people is a lot of jobs. Okay. If we have half of the, and we're outside of groceries there because we're in all different types of things with Walmart, not just groceries. You've got Walmart stores, you've got Sam's Clubs in that number, you've got truck drivers, and all of those jobs have their own problems. But it's not just all grocery, right? Again, the number that I gave you for groceries of, uh, was it 2.7, 2.6 million, 2.6 million. It does include management and things like that, but they're all, that's all, this is from, uh, from the government, bls.gov. That's all in the gro dedicated grocery sector employees, 2.6 million, 1.3. So if you, if you compare that to Walmart's number of 2.1, it's like half of every person that works for Walmart losing their job just in this one thing. And I think the number could be worse. Because if you go to, you know, there's a lot of people being employed by uh, uh, Amazon warehouses, but there's a lot of work being done by robots, too. And the technology Amazon already has can stock shelves. The technology to have the trucks bring the stuff to the store it, 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 without a driver is already here. We just haven't had the regulatory hurdles cleared yet, and we will. There is a staggering amount of loss of jobs in the next 10 to 20 years coming that is unfathomable to people. Even people talking about this just don't get this yet. And again, we keep having people like, I remember, I can't remember who it is now, but one guy that's pretty famous said that, well, as long as there's problems to be solved, we'll have jobs. We'll have things for people to do. Sure, but do they, do they pay a wage? Do they come with benefits? Are they the type of thing that Americans have been taught to accept as jobs? And is there enough for everybody? How many of these, how many of these sectors can be hit this hard before you hit a tipping point where you start to have a downward spiral and we have to do something about it? And we're there. We, we've talked about this for the last hundred years, really. Uh, society really for a hundred years has looked at one day technology will, you know, replace workers at an, un, an unprecedented level. And it's always been the case that whatever technology has done to replace people, there's been new opportunities and things like that. But we're reaching a fine. You have to also understand, like, on top of this, How many people right now, if they didn't go to their job for the next six months, it wouldn't really matter? It was just nothing would happen. No one would really care. Like somebody would care the day they didn't show up and somebody had to pull their slack or whatever. Or a solution had to be found. But like within a couple weeks, people would just go, we never really needed that person. Guys, it's millions. And as you start the leaning out process, those people go first. Those people go first. That's where all the jobs in 2008, 2009, they took our jobs. They went to Mexico. They went to India. No, they didn't. No, our jobs went to Mexico and India and things like that in the 90s. And some of them are still leaving here and there, but the big exodus was the 90s. 2008, 2009, the jobs went away. They disappeared because of leaning out. I'm telling you, I was in the business sector at the time. We did it with our companies in advance of it. Six months in advance, we had already leaned out because we knew. We knew it was coming. And a big part of that is the, the brilliance that is Neil Franklin, my, my ex-partner. Um, he, he sat me down and said, we're going to be in a recession in six months. Not a little one either. Serious recession. 
It's going to impact us hard. We need to make hard decisions now. He convinced me of it, and then we had to sit down. We had three different companies that, that we, we oversaw. And we had to sit down with executives in all three of those companies and explain to them why they had to let people go before there was a problem. It wasn't easy. But we did it, and we came out the other side stronger. But the people we let go, we never hired them back. And it happened in hundreds and hundreds of places, thousands really, in 2008-2009. Because we're at the end of this. This is an end game. We have to evolve to something completely different now. Just keep that in mind, and again, doesn't it doesn't make me happy to say I'm right about this. It worries me for my son. It worries me for my grandchildren. If we don't adapt to this new paradigm, we're going to have real problems. The things we think are problems today, we'll be waxing nostalgically to them as the good old days. Let's take another one. Okay, next up is one for my buddy Steve here, who is uh, lives on the other side of the Metroplex for me over in uh, the eastern side. And uh, he has a question for me that my answer is no, but maybe it would be a yes from somebody out there that lives in this area or someone close enough to drive and pick up their share. He says, Jack, would you be interested in or know anyone that would be interested in splitting a pallet of triple cleaned barley for fodder? I'm willing to split one with a person or up to four guys. We can get it out of Kansas for $13.50 for 48-pound bag, and the shipping for 40 bags on a pallet has been quoted to me at $200. That would be $18.50 a bag. Let me know if you or some you know someone because I am wanting to order pretty soon. Thanks, Steve. Um, I have gone 100% for my fodder needs to using black oil sunflower. It's readily available. It's cheap. It works, it grows fast, and my ducks like it more than they seem to like barley. However, barley fodder is great, and for a lot of you guys using it you know, with animals other than ducks, like chickens love the shit out of barley fodder. So it may be something you're interested in or have other reasons you'd want that much barley. If you're interested, I don't want to give out Steve's information over the public airways, but if you'll just email me with TSPC in the subject line and say, TSPC Barley... Uh, let me know, and I'll put you in touch with Steve if you're interested in going on a deal with him. Again, Steve's in the North Texas area, so you, you, you probably don't want to be in Florida and, and, and email about this. But if you're in the, the you know, somewhere near Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, this would probably be something that might interest you if you need lots of barley on the cheap. So check it out. Uh, next up, I'm going to read a couple different responses to this segment. So last week... In the call-in show, Carson, oh, I'm sorry, Jason from BA called in and said that his, I think it was his sister-in-law or his aunt or some family member, not a, no, not the, like the nuclear family, but some, you know, relatively, you know, one-off family member had had a stroke. And the ambulance came and took her to the nearest hospital where they didn't have the most advanced technology in dealing with stroke. And that she basically lost, uh, completely lost the left side of her brain which is the horrible thing, and that he wanted people to know that if you call an ambulance, that they are instructed to take you to the closest hospital, whether or not um, they have the most advanced treatment for your needs. I want to read a couple different things people have sent back, uh, taking exception to that. And then I'm going to tell you what's really going on here. It says, 
follow-up from a previous caller. This is from Randy. As you know, I'm a paramedic. I work in Roll County where our hospital of choice is a fourth-year hospital. In one sense, you and the caller are right. There could be circumstances where driving yourself to a more distant hospital is better than allowing EMS to force transport to a nearer hospital. You must remember the patient always has the right to request a specific hospital or decline transport. It is also important to remember that there are prevailing standards of care that are different for each circumstance. There are stroke centers, there are trauma centers for trauma, there are dedicated centers for cardiac emergencies. Ideally, EMS is supposed to transport you to the nearest appropriate facility. In my case, I don't take sick people to our local hospital. There have been several circumstances where I've landed a helicopter at our hospital and flown a patient to a more appropriate facility. A good place to start is here. There's a link. Uh, this map will allow you to locate nearest trauma center. TCs are always a good bet, level three or better. Uh, there's a lot to say on this. There's a lot to say on this subject. I'd love to offer any input I can. Feel free to email me or call me. Uh, I'm joining Zello as Sleepy Medic. Um, next one on this. Uh, let me find it real quick. Uh, my name is Ryan. I am a longtime listener from the beginning of the Jetta days. I need to write you after listening to episode 198 regarding the comment that you received about taking someone to the hospital in an emergency. I'm a full-time firefighter paramedic in a busy EMS fire system in California. Yes, I hate it here. I have been doing this business for over 18 years. The experience the listener had in PA is definitely not the norm across the United States. In fact, if that was the experience I had for any of my friends or family, I would be at a local medical director's, director's face in about 30 seconds. Hate to say it, but I would even venture to say that the paramedics on the call or the medical director may have opened themselves to civil lawsuit by not taking patients to the appropriate medical facility. Please let me explain how the emergency medical system works and why putting someone in a car and taking them to the hospital when they're truly sick isn't a good idea. When 911 is called, I respond from my fire station to the location, walk in and start treating the patient. They may need breathing treatments, IV fluid, heart monitoring, or shocking the heart, someone simply to hold their hand. If during my assessment I find signs and symptoms of injury or illness that small ER can't handle, I relay that person to my medical info to my medical partner. This starts the ball rolling. Hospital systems have specific designations in most EMS communities. Some designations include cardiac receiving centers, stroke neuro receiving centers, trauma centers, OBGYN receiving centers, and burn centers. The small little hole in the wall ER probably doesn't have any specific designations, and 911 is not required to take the patient to the nearest hospital. The other important piece of information is the specialty designation can change on a daily basis. If one hospital is a trauma center, but they just had four trauma patients dropped off, and that's their max capacity, then they can't take any more trauma patients. Or if the only neurointerventionalist at a hospital is on vacation, they are unable to accept stroke patients. This is relayed to our, us over radio during a call. So when I decide that a patient needs specialty care, I am on the radio to use hospital to both confirm that hospital is open and accepting a patient type if, that I'm treating and give them a heads up and I bring the sick patient that they are ready. If that hospital isn't available, I move on to the next specialty center that I can. During transport time, I may pass many, many hospitals, but they aren't capable of treating my patient's condition. It's too, if it's too far based on my patient's condition or transport time, I can always fly them to the hospital if need be. The only time I may go to the closest hospital with a specialty patient is if they die while en route to the center, specialty center. So taking that sick family member and putting them in a car isn't always a good idea. The information that the EMS team has on their fingertips in your living room can make a huge difference in the patient's outcomes. We see negatives this all the time when hospitals themselves call 911 to transfer a patient to a specialty center because the patient was brought in by a family member to a small ER. In closing, 
Uh, I was a little concerned when you suggested taking someone to the Cardo Hospital as a potential lifesaver. The failure of EMS system for one listener and truly was a failure shouldn't have complete change for all listeners' emergency plans. Classic, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater scenario. If anything, please blast this info along to listeners as they need to make their own medical advocates at all times. 911 is not required to go to the nearest hospital, and there are specialty centers to treat different illnesses and injuries. With this information, patients and family can make informed decisions regarding which hospital to go to and put your foot down with EMS crew if needed. Feel free to contact me via email or cell if you have any questions at all. Thanks again for all you do. Here's the interesting thing. So there's two people that pretty much are saying the same thing. One more detail. Um, all of them are, no, no. Since hearing two totally different views of this, I have looked into this, and every place in this country is different. Every place in this country is different. Some of this is done at a state level. Some of it's done at a regional level. Uh, in larger met metropolitans, it's done at, at a city level where these decisions are made. And Ryan's right. Maybe uh, Jason from PA's family has a lawsuit at their feet right now. And maybe procedure wasn't followed. And maybe that's not what was supposed to be done. And maybe it was a mistake. And maybe they should have taken her to a stroke center, but they didn't properly identify the solution. Or maybe the policy really was, we take you to the nearest hospital. Maybe, I don't know, Jason has to check into this now and let us know, maybe the policy was we take you to the nearest hospital unless you specifically request otherwise. Who knows? Maybe in this case, the nearest place that was a stroke facility was unable to take them. And they felt that this is, I, I don't really know what happened, but this is how I would update my advice to you. I would say that it behooves all of us to not listen to someone like Ryan who just says, well, that's the way it is without checking in our area. That we should know the best hospitals for individual needs and, and things in our area, and we should know what the procedure of our 911 responders is, both ambulance and paramedics that are on, on the firefighter trucks, right? Because the firefighter truck doesn't take you to the hospital. It, it, it might give you care until such time as you, you know your EMS gets there. Um. I, I do believe I said, and I, I would still caution with this, if you think someone's in, in dire need and needs to be in a hospital, then the chances that they might die while you're transporting them are real. And you always have to make a very hard split-second decision as to whether or not you're going to use an ambulance or whether or not you're going to use uh, your own vehicle, because this is the deal. Even if maybe they don't go to the perfect facility for you, your loved one or yourself in an ambulance where they have equipment and training is likely to have more chance of survival than being, you know, in next to you in the passenger seat. If they go into cardiac arrest, even if you know how to do CPR or what have you, well, if you've stopped to do that, you're not on the way to the hospital anymore. So I, I think I gave quite a bit of caution with that. But I also think that we do have to take, and that's what Ryan says, you have to be our own advocate. We do have to make our own decisions in the end. We, we really do. So I'm going to just kind of update my advice with, you should find out what the standard procedure is in your area if you call 911 and an ambulance comes. What do they do? Do they do what Ryan said? Do they get on the horn and start going, okay, this guy's having a stroke? Or this guy's got serious trauma. What is the nearest trauma center? Where's the nearest you know place with advanced stroke care? 
and start working the numbers and figuring it out and going, shit, if we can't get you there, we're going to have a helicopter come get you? Or do they take you to the nearest podunk ER and dump your ass off? Which one do they do? And, you know, I hate to say this, but everybody has a bad day and does half-ass job, even people that are supposed to save your life. And it may be that this is the procedure they're supposed to follow, but it may be at times that they come up with a justification to just dump you off because, well, there's another call and it's really late night. I mean, I, I hate to say that, but you have to always protect yourself and your loved ones. And the more you know beforehand, the better. So I wouldn't necessarily assume that Jason was right when he said they'll just take you to the nearest hospital. And I wouldn't assume, even though Ryan has 18 years of experience, that Ryan's right either that this is what they're supposed to do, because Ryan is from California, not Pennsylvania. And that's a difference. And and what people do, and, and you can say, well, they're supposed to do it everywhere. Well, a lot of people are supposed to do a lot of things. It doesn't mean they do. So I would I would take the initiative here because you never know when someone's going to collapse and grab their chest or all of a sudden start speaking with words that don't make sense, that don't go together, exhibiting signs of aphasia, which is a, a sign of stroke, or be seriously injured. And even if what you're going to do is call 911, knowing what to do when 911 gets there, knowing what hospital you want them taken to, whether or not that's procedure, what it takes to go around that procedure when it's necessary, Could be the difference between life and death, or a productive life, or a very unproductive life due to a life-altering experience like losing half of your brain hemisphere, right? I mean, that's just, I mean, it's awful to think about. So I've done my duty. I've updated you with the opinions of professionals, and I've gotten a couple dozen of these, by the way. I just don't want to read them all. that say various things, but I've gotten enough of them, and I've communicated back with enough people to know it's not the same everywhere. And you need to figure out what it is where you are. And then you also need to understand something. I need to say something to stick up for these people that risk their ass to, to save lives. It could be the case where there just isn't a specialty place to take you to. All they can do is get you to the closest doctor and hope he figures out what to do. There are times when, like you said, you know, the, the, yeah, sure, this is a, a you know a specialized center for this thing, but. The, the, the two people that do it, one's on vacation, the other one's in a hospital himself. What do you want them to do? Just fabricate one out of thin air because you want it? You do have to understand there's times when fate is not kind. and But we should do all we can to not be at the whim of fate at the same time. Next one comes from Mike, and it's a confession to getting his ass handed to him by fate because he relied too much on his preps. How does that happen? Here you go says, I got caught unprepared because I was used to having my preps back me up. So starting listening years ago, I've kept my car's gas tank nowhere near empty and always carried two to two and a half gallons in the trunk. I missed my usual fill-up on Friday when my and my wife drove the car more than usual on Friday night and Saturday. I started Monday with the same low-fuel warning light that I had on Friday, or so I thought. When the gas light comes on, there's still about two and a half gallons left, so I thought I was good to go and would make the trip to Costco to fill up. I even stopped at a gas station for my favorite morning beverage, but gas cost too much there. Just five miles later, and I was stuck on the highway. Fortunately, I was able to get all the way over to the right lane on, into the exit ramp. It would have been far worse if I had to pull over on the left shoulder, 
As I took the walk of shame with my gas can up the exit ramp in my dress shoes, I reminded myself why I used to carry gas and sturdy shoes in my trunk. Today was a piece of cake compared to what it could have been. The gas station was only a quarter mile away, but none of that is safe walking in the dark. Filling was less than safe, and short nozzles on gas cans stink. I am thankful for my wake-up, and I hope this encourages others to perform a self-check of their complacency. Thanks, Mike. Living for two hours a day on I-75. Man, I remember those days, man. I, I, I'm with you. So I guess that the uh, little can, little gas can that you kept in the vehicle must have been a time when the vehicle was low on fuel, so you used it and then didn't refill it. I, I'm guessing that's what happened. I, I've been there. Um, now... Not at this point in my life since I started really practicing preparedness, but when I was a kid, um, I say a kid, I was out of the army. I was, I just got out of the army and, uh, I bought a Mustang II, which is like the Pinto's big brother, right? It was like a 74 or 76 Mustang II. It's a pretty nice little car. I paid $400 for cash. And, uh, my buddy and I were, were going fishing out to the river and we're, we're hauling ass along this little country road and then we get up on the highway and we're, we're hauling ass down the highway and all of a sudden the car just goes poof, shuts off. Um, the gas needle, the gas needle said a quarter tank. Well, it's an older car even at the time and it, the gas gauge just wasn't working right. So I thought I had gas when I didn't. Uh, we walked, it was about a mile walk to the nearest gas station, back down an exit, going back down the highway and down the exit, because we knew where the gas station was, we're from the area. We get down there, we tell the gas station guy, and this is like a, like a, you know, a Cooter's gas station, where it's like a guy that actually owns it and works there, and he kind of takes pity on you, and he doesn't have like a convenience store, he's like a mechanic shop and, and gas pumps. So he had like this, this, this jug, with, uh, with like a little bit of antifreeze left in it. He, he dumped it into one of the vehicles that were there that had some room for it and rinsed it out and said, here, you can use this. And we carried about a, a half a gallon, I think it was, of gas back up the road. And actually some dude pop, stopped and picked us up. He was a multimillionaire, ran a, a company called Gears Dairy. Of all the people that saw us, that was the guy that stopped to pick us up. Dropped us off out of our car. And if you think it sucks dumping gas into your car, with one of those little short nozzles from a gas can, try dumping it in a car where you're just kind of spilling it in there out of a out of a, uh, a, a, a antifreeze uh, jug. But it was enough gas to fire the car up, hit the next second, spin around, go back down to where that little podunk gas station was, and and fill the car up there and and tell the guy thank you. We even brought his jug back for him. I don't think he really needed it, but I think he actually like wow they they did bring it back. You know, like it's probably just garbage for him, but. uh so I, I've been there. It it, it, it sucks, um, but it, it is the case that if you you're used to keeping a reserve, I think one of the most important things is if you use the reserve, your priority has to become replace it now. You know, and I was a kid. I didn't I didn't do it then. But for instance, one day, well, I had my son use my truck for a while, and I said put fuel in it. You know, and he, he, he brings it back and I don't use my truck very often and I go out and I have to go get some material and I fire the truck up and it's on E. I mean, it's, and I mean, it was like a half, three quarters of a tank when I gave it to him. It's on E. So I go get, this is just a little father son humor, right? I go get one of my 
five-gallon diesel cans uh, with a, a big, long nozzle on it that the military ones come with. And I'm, I have it, you know, dumping. It's a metal nozzle, so you can, like, hold the back of the can, and the metal nozzle won't break. It'll hold itself in the in the thing, and it's running. I take mom filling. I take my phone, and I take a picture, and I text the picture to him, and it says, I am not amused. <laughs> We had a brief discussion and an apology after that. But, um, you know, I've, I've, I've been there with it. But what my point is, is so what I did is I threw that can in the back of the truck. I went down to the, 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 the fuel station before I went to get my material from the material place, and I filled the truck and the can. I, I think that's it, it's important because you're like, oh, that backup's there. That backup's there. Well, not if you've used it and haven't replaced it. So thanks for confessing your uh, your mistake because maybe it'll help some other people, Mike. Uh, next one I have is I have a question from Mick in Pennsylvania. He says, hey, Jack, just want to get your opinion on the prospect of General James Mattis for Secretary of Defense. I've seen everything from people comparing him to Ike with a hatred for war, but a conviction to win any war that is required to be fought. To a video Milo, whoever that is, posted of some psychopath who claims to be a Marine excitedly freaking out and talking about how great he is for Secretary of War and suggesting Mattis will just steamroll the world and make juice or something. What I've seen doesn't look terribly promising, Afghanistan, Iraq, etc., but we all know the warrior doesn't get to choose his war, and if a politician doesn't let a warrior win, then they don't win. Anyway, I'd love to hear your take on what you think he'd mean for our nation as well as our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. Thanks, Merry Holidays to you and yours, and Happy Holidays to you too, Mick. Um, so I, I want to start out with something that, is going on right now. And like, it's what I said earlier. Like, like if, if Donald Trump somehow came across the resurrected spirit of Mother Teresa and said, I'm going to make her, I don't know, uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, which it looks like, uh, what's his name? Uh, the, the doctor guy from the, uh, uh, the election, uh, Ben Carson might get that job, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. Something befitting Mother Teresa was given a cabinet position. The, the media would say, oh, my God, she's Hitler. I mean, that's how, like, nothing the guy says or does can can be right uh, under any circumstances. And that's what's happening here. So General Mathis is, is, is being quoted with some of, like, really controversial quotes he said, like, it's fun to shoot some people, right? Um, but there's been no context given with how and where that, you might be like, well, where would that be okay? Okay, so here is where he said it's a hell of a lot of fun to shoot them. All right, he did say it. It's, you go into Afghanistan, you got guys who slap women around for five years because they didn't wear a veil. You know, guys like that ain't got no manhood left anyway. So it's a hell of a lot of fun to shoot them. Actually, it's quite fun to fight them, you know. It's a hell of a hoot. It's fun to shoot some people. I'll be right up with you there. I like brawling. And that was about fighting the Taliban in 2005. All right, you got a Marine general. And when he said this, he's still active duty Marine general. Uh, I don't care if you're a Marine lieutenant. I don't care if you're a, a staff sergeant. I don't care if you're a sergeant first class. But you're given a directive. And, and that directive is take these men into harm's way overtake and kill and destroy the enemy, and you're going to have men die. And you have to make them willing to go with you in this mission. 
because telling them they have to because they're in the military is not good enough if you actually want to win. This is how you win. And I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something, God honest. I consider myself as close to a pacifist as I am morally capable of being. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to harm anybody. I don't want to shoot anybody. I don't even want to beat the shit out of anybody, even though every once in a while you get angry and you kind of feel that way. I train to defend my life and the lives of others with my hands, with firearms, etc., because someday I may have to, and I would rather be able to and not need to than need to and not be able to. Okay? It's just basic, simple things. But you show me a guy that beats the shit out of his wife because she didn't wear a veil properly and thinks it's okay, and he beats a woman every day, and you put me in a situation where that guy wants to shoot me and I get to shoot him, I will take some satisfaction in knowing that son of a bitch isn't going to be there to do it to her anymore. And if that makes me anything bad you want to call me, fine. Because I would rather be that than someone who wouldn't stand up for that woman. And if that's the kind of guy this guy is, you could do worse. I don't know the guy's whole history. I do know that the whole Mad Dog thing is not his name for himself. That his troops gave him that name. And I think that has a lot to say about the fact that they trust him and follow him. He's not actually fond of that. I do know that. Um, he, he, <laughs> he also said this quote. I come in peace. I didn't bring artillery, but I'm pleading you, pleading with you, with tears in my eyes. If you ever, and I'll just say it because it's his quote, if you ever fuck with me, I will kill you all. What do you expect from a Marine? Especially a Marine Corps general in combat arms. I come in peace. I didn't bring artillery, but I'm pleading with you all with tears in my eyes. Before we get to the part that he's being quoted by mainstream media is saying. Be polite, be professional, but have a plan to kill everybody you meet. Advice to soldiers before the second Iraq invasion. Put it in context. You're about to go to war. People are going to try to kill you. They're going to try to make you dead. Whether you want to go or not, doesn't matter. The orders come down from our commander-in-chief. We're going to go take that hill proverbially. Be polite. Be professional. But have a plan to kill everyone you meet. That's actually a lot of temperance against the killing. And the killing is going to happen one way or another. I don't know. The, the hurdle, as I believe Mathis has been out of service for three years, and what they've always said is there's supposed to be in the two highest positions in defense a civilian and a military role. And therefore, people that take the Secretary of Defense position have to be civilian and are supposed to have been out of service for more than seven years, versus three. There is precedent for this. It was done before any of the people listening likely were ever born um, in the past. But it, it probably can be done again. Uh, it probably will be done again. He probably will be our Secretary of Defense. I don't know. I don't have a dog in this hunt. I am woefully fed up with politics. But I, I am willing 
even me, I'm willing to give Donald Trump a chance. Here's some rope. Either prove me wrong or hang yourself with it. And I'm certainly willing to do it with it on this decision because the real question you should be asking yourself if you pay attention to this stuff is, is the guy capable? Is he competent? And I, I don't know that there's a more competent person than that. Because I'm going to say this about Donald Trump. I'm going to give Donald Trump some, some recognition. I, I feel is, is worthy of it. The deal keeping the carrier jobs in Indiana, not all of them, but a lot of them. He's being criticized because, well, they made a deal with the company. That's what he said he was going to do. Um, well, they gave him tax incentives. Okay, so you're saying taxing businesses less keeps them in America. That's what you're saying. So, yeah, I'm kind of for this 15% corporate tax rate or whatever they can cut it to because, again, this is what people don't understand, guys. The, the corporate tax thing, when they say, it's a tax cut for billionaires, it's a tax cut for companies. Personal income tax, when you take money out of your company, when you take it as a dividend, when you take it into your personal possession, it gets taxed again. Okay? It gets taxed twice. So if we're taxing corporations 40%, And then the guy taking the money out of it as a, a CEO is taxed at 35%. That money's taxed at 75%. Okay? Get, I mean, you, you gotta understand that. But, but my deal with Trump, with the carrier thing, you correct me if you know otherwise. Please do. Because I'd like to know where it happened. To the first time, in my knowledge, a man ran for president. He made a promise. I will keep, specifically said, I will keep these carrier jobs in Indiana and kept the promise before he was sworn in. After the election, but before he was sworn in. Already got involved, already got the deal done. No matter what you think, you got to give him some credit. Now the whole Bernie Sanders thing, is he just said to every company, all you have to do is threaten to leave and you can get tax incentives. Well, I'd like them all to pay. I'd like everybody to pay less taxes anyway. Because all you're saying, again, is cutting taxes makes businesses stay. So I, I'm willing to sit back and say, now, let's see what's going to happen. Because I'll tell you what's not going to happen. Gay people and, 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 and every Hispanic and every Muslim are not going to be rounded up and put in a camp. The, the, fierce, the fear bullshit of the left. And at least I'm not I'm done. I'm done. Because I promise you no politics until the new year. But there's your little bit of it. It's all bullshit. Let's take another one. Um, no, more follow-up from a call in, the call-in show last week. Um, actually, the expert counsel show last week. This is from Sean in Oklahoma. Sean says, while Jeff Lawton may have some very good agricultural advice, I would feel remiss if I did not weigh in here. Uh, let me, i got to give you some background. So the, the caller called in. He wanted to do a cow-calf operation with 10 cows, 10 calves, on a piece of property he can't get to all the time, maybe a couple times a week. Uh, or once a week, and he had some issues, and, and Jeff gave him some advice. Um, but here we go. Uh, Jeff Lott may have some very good agricultural advice, but I feel remiss if I did not weigh in here. I operate a very large 3,000-head uh, cattle operation in north-central Oklahoma. If this guy thinks he can succeed in operating a cow-calf remotely, he is sorely mistaken without taking some serious financial losses. I would seriously suggest that he would invest in five- or six-wire fence to keep his livestock in, considering reducing his stocking rate to five to six animals 
the size of his property, and most importantly, he needs a way to ensure that those animals have water every day, every damn day. He needs to start with feeder cattle, stalkers, for at least two years to see what unforeseen issues he will run into. Cow-calf operations require more attention than lay people give credit to. They will be veterinary needs, mechanical needs, and time requirements that all cost money. I wish this fellow luck, but the cattle business is not in any man's business. It requires daily attention and steadfast care. I would be morally irresponsible to have a remote operation and think all will be fine. I offer this advice with love and hope, and we will find more freedom and self-reliance. But in this instance, Mr. Lawton's advice will result in lost revenue, significant reduction in animal well-being. Thanks, Sean. And my response is, now you have both sides of the story. You have to make your own determination, and maybe. Maybe. Because we had a guy on the air, I can't remember exactly when, it was within the last two years, that did exactly this. On leased land, he did a cow-calf operation. I believe it was about 10 head, and he was there once a week. Now, he had everything set up, and yes, they always had water and stuff like that. Um, but he was able to do it. So somebody did it, and he was a new guy, brand new into it, and managed to pull it off. But I think the caution from Sean is valid. That's why I read it. And I think that in all of these instances, we always have people that say, well, you can just do this. And people say, well, no, you can't. And, you know, it, 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 it all depends. It all depends on the unique situation. I will say the one thing that, that worried me about this is the gentleman that wanted to do this was in Texas. Um, our grazing land in Texas is not as rich and lush as it is in a lot of other parts of the country. And it may be a really tough thing. And, and I often see cattle around here grazed for uh, a very short period of the year for basically finishing. You see places around here where we get this really nice pasture in late winter, early spring, into early summer. And I don't know where the cattle come from, but when they show up, you can tell they're almost done. And they're being finished on this grass, and then they're going to graduation. And... I'll throw another thing in here. The guy that I've met in my life that's made the most money on cattle, period, and I'm talking four to five million dollars a year, had access to a really huge piece of grazing land that he had leased for a very good deal, and he would go to the sale barn and buy underweight cattle, put weight on them, and flip them right back out. He never held a cow for more than 120 days. 120 days, and flip them. And uh, he was good at it, and he knew what to do. And I'm not saying just go do that, because you can lose your ass doing that too. Because you have to pick out the reject cow of another person that you already know from your experience can be turned around quickly. And and he knew how to do it. And he was in, he was an old man. He had to be in his 80s. And myself and, and Mark Shepard and, and five other people deep into this sat around listening to this guy and were just blown away by by what he was able to do. And he didn't do everything the way we would have done it. Not everything was 100%, you know, beyond grass-fed organic stuff. But his model worked. And I think that there's something to be said for figuring out what works. Now, what I like about Sean's advice, use cheap cows, use less cows, figure out what you're doing wrong before you try to do it right, maybe, maybe. But I'll leave it to the, the person that was asking for the advice to work with local people. I know he's working with NRCS, etc., to make his own decision in the end. Let's take another one. 
So um, this one comes in from Alan. Alan says, can you recommend a glass, gas blowback airsoft pistol that can run propane that is a clone of the Ruger SR-22? I'm a daily listener. Love the podcast. Now, Alan, when you wrote that into me, you know why you wrote that into me. Because you went out and tried to find one, and you couldn't find one because there isn't one. Now, I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying that like that's the reality you've run into, that you have this gun. And when you get into the world of gas blowback airsoft, you're always going to get into a world where there's some things they just don't have. There is almost everything. I couldn't even find an SR-22 um, in, in spring. But in the spring gun world, there's almost everything. So, you know, airsoft, for those that are new to the show, is they're like, they look like toys. And some of them really are toys, and some of them are pretty advanced professional training uh, models. And the spring-based guns... Or the lowest cost stuff, decent ones are 15 to 30 bucks. They have a magazine if they're a you know, semi-auto handgun that, that feeds from the bottom. That functions the same way. They function by racking the slide, but you rack the slide and it puts tension on a spring. You fire it once, you have to rack the slide again. So you can't double tap, you, you can't do follow-up shots, you can't move and shoot. You have to draw a fire once, recock, reholster, or however you're you know practicing. And You can find all kinds of crazy shit, you know, subcompacts, whatever, in the spring world. But when you move to gas blowback, which to me is the, the top level, gas blowback meaning that it's run by gas, you fire it and the slide cycles and, and returns, and you get the simulated recoil, everything functions exactly the same. There are CO2 that are, um, that are slide action. And our CO2 that are fixed action, meaning they shoot, but everything functions except there's no the slide doesn't move. It's a fixed slide, so it, it just you know it shoots and it just fires. So everything works except the slide. And sometimes you can find a CO2 without without blowback for a model that you can't find in gas blowback. The most limited, as far as finding frames and models and types, is gas blowback because it is a world that is dominated by gamers. Even though a lot of us use airsoft for training purposes and for just fun and plinking and practical and tactical training, all, all that's good stuff, even though that's the case, um, the dominant buyer in the market in America are gamers that shoot at each other and play war games and stuff like that, CQB and stuff like that. The other dominant buyer in the market is in a lot of the countries where you cannot buy a firearm, but you can buy an airsoft gun, they have the equivalents of like IDPA, pistol shooting and stuff like that using airsoft. So what do those guys shoot? 1911s. And that's why, if you look in gas blowback, there's 100 billion different options for 1911s, including some that are thousands of dollars for top-end competitors. All right? So it's just not there. So what do you do then? Well, my suggestion would be that you go find the closest thing to what you're looking for. Your big problem is you're looking for a very compact gun, and since this is something dominated by the the world of um, you know gamers that don't necessarily need a compact handgun, um, most of the guns in gas blowback are larger size. There's a couple I could recommend for you: the P345PR uh, by Ruger is basically a sized-up version of the SR-22. The, the, the safety works the same. Everything. It's just a little bit bigger. And 
Ruger through a company called Uramax makes a licensed CO2 non-blowback of that gun. So that's going to be bigger. It's going to fit your hands bigger, but but the safety and everything and the trigger is all going to be very similar. Or you could just say, well, I need a small, light handgun to practice with. And then the best gas blowback gun that fits that, that I know of, is the Wather PPQM2. And it's about $100 bucks on eVike. I'll have links to where you can find both of these guns in today's show notes. Um, I'm not an affiliate or anything with either one of the suppliers of them. Um, the PPQ is not the same as, as the, uh, the SR-22. It's not. But it kind of like it from a fit and finish and form. It has the two-stage trigger, which the, the other one doesn't. But I think we need to understand when we're practicing with gas blowback what we're really trying to do. We're trying to zoom in on the muscle memory of drawing, taking aim, firing, moving, cycling, etc. And if you told me, well, the reason I want this clone is because I carry my SR-22 everywhere and it's my concealed carry gun and what have you, I'd say, are, are you sure you want that to be your concealed carry handgun? You want to use a 22 for it? Now, I'll be honest. I have a, a Wather uh, .22 that's small. It's compact. It shoots like a dream. It's extremely fast. It's extremely accurate. And sometimes, wearing certain clothing... In certain situations, I strap it on versus my 45. Because I, I, I think anybody that gets a few of those in the forehead is going to have a bad day. But it's not my preferred carry gun. And, you know, it, it, it might be worth even evaluating that. You're not saying you're carrying it up, but I'm, I'm imagining that's why. Or maybe you just have one and the family shoots and you want an analog for them to shoot. So I, I guess my overriding advice is when it comes to airsoft with gas blowback, if they don't have your gun, get something of a similar size and focus more on learning to shoot a handgun well and then train and drill with your firearm to know where your safety, your release, so you're, you know, depending on what it is because some of them have safety, some of them are double action only, long pull, what have you. Some of them have the Glock style, safety triggers and what have you. But learn your gun. And if you practice a lot, I mean, I can I have like six different frames that I have as, as guns that I own, and I have almost as many frames in airsoft, and I can pick any one of them up and run that frame. Just run it because that's where the that's how this one works. And there's there's beauty to the man that owns one gun theory. Be aware of the man that has one gun; he may know how to use it. But there's also having the capability to pick up and run any gun. And if you get familiar and comfortable with guns, you should be able to pick up a handgun and look at it and in a few moments figure out how it basically functions. Maybe you might need some instruction or assistance with how to take it down, like where's the release for the slide or whatever. But when it comes to, like, here's the mag release, here it does or does not have a safety, it's double, it's single action, whatever. Those things, if you want to be proficient with a gun, you should get there. Because you never know in some situation where maybe it's not your gun that you're relying on. Maybe it's a gun that was available. Maybe it's a gun because somebody that was in an altercation dropped it because they were hit, but somebody else has a gun and you've picked it up. Stuff like that really does happen. 
Stuff like that really does happen. So uh, anyway, I'll put a link to those two that I suggest you check out. That's the best I can do for you. Let's take one more. Okay, uh, my, my cleanup story for the day. Uh, last week we had an in-depth discussion about UBI, or Universal Basic Income. And as I said in the intro today, I very much appreciate the fact that I haven't been attacked for talking about it, because just because I'm talking about it doesn't mean that I'm advocating for it. I've discussed it, what would be the good and the bad of it, and you know its likelihood of happening. And, and frankly, I feel that under our current economic system, the idea of, well, just use a progressive income tax to do it. We'll just steal more money. So morally, I'm opposed to it, but mathematically, it doesn't work. But there, there are mathematical ways to maybe make this thing happen with a true nationalized currency rather than a debt-backed currency, which doesn't benefit the bankers, so don't look for it to happen other than if they can figure out the way, the way to make it benefit them. And they might, and they might feel that they have to. And I'll explain why here before I go into some of the feedback I've gotten on this. So, like it or not, millions of jobs are not going to be displaced. They're going to be eliminated with no replacements. If you get a, a 50% replacement rate, which means for every job we lose, we get a half a job back. So we lose 10 jobs, we get five back, which is optimistic over the next 20 years. And you lose 50 million jobs, we're in a world of hurt. So you get to a point where the oligarchs, the corporatocracy, the businesses of the world, the, the giant businesses, um, see, the big business needs the little business to succeed. They can't just be there. They got to have a, a, like a hierarchy of business for the giant corporation to be successful too. It takes a lot of, of Jack Spiercos running their own business and let's say Brian Black from ATS, ATS Tactical employing 12 people to make sure that Apple can sell enough iPhones. You see how that all works together. So if you get to a point eventually where the cannibalization process starts to hurt the large corporations. In other words, yes, we can make everything cheaper, faster, easier with automation, but we don't have anybody to sell it to, then the oligarchs themselves may see this as a solution because it will lead to lots of little businesses and companies, I believe, if they ever do it, uh, and a stabilization for rural America that I talked about last week. So here's some of the different things that I have had come to me in feedback uh, over this week from discussing UBI. It says, uh, this one's from Jason on the blog. He says, I have to agree with you on one point. I think UBI would lead to migration back to small towns and to be frank and increase the amount of money in those small towns. Well, well, of course it would. All those people would have a certain amount of money. I don't see people just laying around and doing nothing, as you pointed out. Assistance is easy to get on. The only person I ever saw do something like that was one friend of mine who wasn't working anyway. He couldn't hold a job for more than two months. He finally got on disability. So not working anyway. He, even if he was, if I wasn't working, I'd have something on the go. Let me put it this way. Does anybody have no hobbies or pastimes in the world? Everyone I know has other things they're doing. It is crazy to think people would just sit around and do nothing. Um, next one is from Josinga. Josinga says, Monty Python is the best. Thanks for that post, Jack. As far as UBI, I can't think of a better way to promote anarcho-capitalism than this. Remove the impediment for people to do what they, what their heart leads, and man, a lot of risk-taking can happen. Risk-taking is a pure capitalist endeavor. Your analogy of Brian is perfect. He had his basic shit covered, so he was able to take risk, and lo and behold, many more people are benefiting from it now. This is a different take on it here for the next one. Joe, not, Joe says, uh, 
Uh, with universal basic income, the one thing that no one seems to talk about is that government will need to track and monitor each citizen so they aren't paying a second income to an individual who doesn't really exist for it to work properly. Without incredibly intensive monitoring, monitoring of one way or the other by government, how would you stop people from claiming two, three, or more incomes via fake identities? And once we are relying on UBI, what's to stop future governments from requiring citizens to meet certain conditions in order to continue to receive benefits? Doesn't UBI allow government to increase the control over people they are meant to serve? Oh, those are two different things. We'd have to have this incredible tracking system, and, I mean, God, you know, it's so complicated. Yeah, it's called the Social Security number they use at the IRS right now. You're already tracked. Every American's already tracked with their income and everything. Is there fraud? Sure there is. Sure there is. And can you deal with that? Yeah. And will we have to have some kind of draconian 1984 George Orwell tracking system of human beings to be able to do that? Well, first of all, you're already carrying your own tracking system. It's called a cell phone. So most Americans have done nothing to mitigate that fact and just accepted that that's the way that it is. Um, so you're already being tracked. But no, it wouldn't have to be any more than what's already in place to be able to pay people a benefit as a citizen. Um, just like you file... Uh, a tax return, if you wanted to receive your UBI, you'd have to file some sort of paperwork to receive your UBI. Um, you'd have to have birth certificate, whatever, and, and that's getting more and more. I mean, it used to be pretty easy. Like in 1985, if you wanted to set up a fake identity, it was actually pretty easy. It's gotten very difficult to do now. So, no. Now, I do have that concern, UBI. Because here's one of the things I thought about UBI. Well... Should we just give it to anybody? Or should there be some requirement? Like, well, you have to at least be educated. You have to at least be educated. Well, what do you mean by that? Like, does that mean you have to graduate the state school so we can put the K-Bosh in homeschooling? Or you have to at least complete a GED? And wouldn't people without the education be in the most need of it? So... That's a concern. What if we said, well, if you commit a felony, you lose your UBI for life, just like you use your, lose your right to vote or own a firearm with a felony. Well, wait a minute. Those are the guys that, like, there are people that have committed felonies. They made legitimate mistakes. They've gone to the penitentiary. They've served their time. They've rehabilitated themselves. They've taken part in all different types of programs that are offered. They are legitimately not the person that made the mistake that landed them there. And yet they end up repeat offenders because they can't find a life. They can't find an opportunity. Wouldn't those people be the best served? Wouldn't it be less likely that somebody would commit a crime if they had their basic needs met? So is there a danger that once the government gives a benefit, it puts conditions upon it which give it greater control? Absolutely. But remember, I'm not advocating this. I'm just discussing the fact that they may do it. So then you have to start asking yourself a totally different question. If that's the case, do you take it? And will it even matter? Will it even matter? I mean, if all the things that government would want you to do to get your UBI would be things you would do anyway and you don't take it out of spite, does that really help anybody? But if they wanted you to do things that were morally reprehensible to you, What if they said, well, listen, you know, you, you, if you run a small business in addition to your UBI and you don't serve gay and lesbians, then you don't get your UBI. So, I mean, to me, that's, that's a human rights violation. I should be able to deny service to anybody that I want to. Now, again, you guys know me. I don't care if you're gay. I don't care at all. 
If you're gay and you listen to my show and you want to buy my product or service to support my show, that's fine. If, if I'm, a, I'm an ordained minister. If, if, if I had two people come to me and say, will you perform our, our, our wedding, and they were gay, I mean, I would say yes or no based on whether I wanted to do it, what the circumstances were, but I wouldn't give a shit that they were gay. I, I wouldn't care. It doesn't matter to me. I was, I was called out because I was in the survival industry and all, and I was at an event one time for permaculture, and there were two gay guys there, and they were like, it's, and this is before the gay marriage, they were like, it's your fault that we can't get married. The one guy was talking to me, the other guy was really shy, and he wasn't talking to me. I said, what do you mean? He said, you have people like you on the right. I don't know who the hell you think you're talking to, but I don't have nothing to do with this shit. And I told him, I said, I'm a minister, go get him, I'll marry you right now up on this hill, it's pretty up here. And his face went like white. He said, I've misjudged you. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, I, I don't care, but I still think that if you want to be a bigot, you should be allowed to be a bigot. Now, the market should judge you, but if something is being given as a public benefit, it shouldn't be denied to you. You shouldn't be forced or compelled into anything. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's a legitimate, that's my one biggest concern about UBI. How do we pay for it? Well, we either we either figure that out or we don't have it, right? Because if they try to do it without figuring out some sort of economic paradigm shift, then the country just goes bankrupt in a year and it goes away. I'm dead serious. It does the math doesn't work. You know, even at let's say a thousand dollars a month, which would be pretty hand to mouth living, twelve grand a year, but you could have an existence. You're still talking at about three and a half trillion dollars a year for every adult in America. The entire budget for this year was 3.7 trillion. That leaves 200 million dollars for everything else: Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, bridges, roads, schools, flowers for orphans, all. So it doesn't mathematically work. But if they figure it out and they do it, how's it going to impact us? Now, the comment before. Would UBI, assuming we could somehow make it work, be good for anarcho-capitalism? You'd say, well, there's no way in hell it could be good for anarcho-capitalism because it comes from the government, and the government has power because of it. Therefore, it's not anarchistic. I didn't say it was anarchistic. I said, could it be good for anarcho-capitalism? I, I think it would be interesting to see what people would do with their lives if their basic needs were met. Now, look. I think there has to be some incentive. So I think that if your basic needs are met, that doesn't mean that you can live like a king. That doesn't mean you can have everything that you want. So when I first got out of the army, I took a job. Uh, my very first job, I made $5.90 an hour, which gross, you're paying very low taxes at this point, but gross is about $1,024 a month. You $5.90 times $40 times $4.34. By 4.34, you figure out monthly salaries. Here's a little math lesson today. You don't multiply by four. There's not four weeks in a month. Average out across the year, there's 4.34 weeks in a month. So 590 an hour, average out across the year, 1024 a month, right? Times 12, about 12,290 uh, a year. 12,290 and some change, right? Okay, so That's what I made in my first job. Now, I've never made $12,000 at a job because I didn't keep it for a year. I went and got something better. But I have to say this. To make it work, I had a roommate. We split an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment. 
I paid half the rent. He paid the other half the rent. Now, again, this is 1993, not 2016, so inflation adjusts these numbers. But I had friends. I went out to bars and occasionally bought some drinks in a bar. I was able to eat every day. I never was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to eat this week. I had a girlfriend, you know, and we had we had a pretty decent relationship until it went south. Um, but I was able to have those things. I had a car. I could put gas in it. I could afford insurance on it. Barely, but I could. The car was paid for. It was a cheap car. I had my basic needs met. I did have to work, and it wasn't a pleasant working environment. But I busted my ever-loving ass to find a better opportunity. Was it because I hated the job? A little bit, but it. let me explain it another way. Let's say that the same job I had, which was packing boxes in a warehouse and unloading trucks in a warehouse and loading trucks on the other side of the warehouse. I did those three jobs mainly. Let's say that job had paid me $150,000 a year. I would have went to work with a smile on my face whistling Dixie. I would have, I would have been like, I don't give a shit. And, and I had assholes that I worked for there. They were pricks. And they were pricks because they were miserable. Because they were supervisors making $10 an hour after being there for 15 freaking years. And they were had somebody breathing down their ass all the time. And they have people like me working for them making six bucks an hour. And how much how much can you get out of somebody in that environment, right? So you got to be a dick. So they didn't really want to be there either. I wouldn't have cared. You, you, You could have called me every name in the book every day. You could have told me I sucked. You could have bitched because, oh, I was there 10 minutes early and started my shift 10 minutes early, but I forgot to check in. That kind of stupid shit, things like that. When you knew that's what happened, you were still being an ass about it, right? I mean, I wouldn't have, 150 grand a year? I don't care. Call me what you want to. I didn't get motivated because the job sucked. I got motivated because my lifestyle wasn't what I wanted. And the people that won't aren't going to anyway. So I don't think that's really a cause for concern. Now, another person, I, I lost the email, but they emailed me about it, and they said, I think people completely underestimate how much entrepreneurship would exist because they live in a part of West Virginia that is full of people on welfare and disability and things like that. It's like food stamps, you name it. It's it, The place has been so decimated that like every household has one or two people on some form of assistance, which is another case for UBI. We're already halfway there anyway. Okay, so eliminate everything else and level it out across everybody and let people fend for themselves. That's not socialism. That's here's your basic allocation of resources. Now, piss off, okay, because you don't get anything else and you have to make your life better. Okay, just so we understand. But here's what he said. He said, every person I know on assistance has a side hustle. But that side hustle is under the table because it has to be. Because if the side hustle becomes above board, then they lose their benefits. I almost wonder if like UBI could work better if you got more, if you did more. What if everybody got a grand? But if you got a job and you worked at least 20 hours a week or you ran a business where you made at least $20,000 a year, your $1,000 UBI went to $2,000. Same tax system that we have now and everything. UBI is untaxed, your income's taxed. What if, like, you, when you got to a certain level of income, you actually went up? Like, it went to $1,000, $2,000. But then we're back to the government doing what? Controlling you with a, with a treat. So I don't know if that works, but it's, it's interesting. Like, 
What if you actually encourage the behavior that, see, it's a problem. I don't trust government to do it. So I'm spitballing a thousand miles out of, out of left field here to understand this, okay? But what if you actually encourage positive behaviors? You know, if you, uh, you, you put a garden in your backyard, your UBI goes up 50 bucks. I, I don't know. It's ridiculous. It could never be done. But could you do something sort of like that? Like, people do it right now with insurance, with health insurance. In fact, the health insurance that was put out of business by Obamacare was starting to do innovative things like this. Like, if you had a health club membership, and I think you had to get, like, something from your health club that said you actually used it, your insurance rates went down. Well, if you could track that, then, you know, by voluntary submission, right? You know, like... You get this, but you can get these other bonuses by telling us. I, I don't know. I, I, at some point, I start looking at this and I go, this is kind of stupid because they're going to do whatever they're going to do anyway. But I, I think we need to understand how to leverage to, to our best ability because I think there's a real possibility of it happening within 20 years. A, a serious possibility. And it could very much affect people because it would replace Social Security. There'd be this whole weaning off period. It's... It, in the end, they're going to have to do something. They're going to have to do something, or the snake's going to eat its tail. That, that's what you have to understand with the automation thing. Business A has to add the automation to compete against Business B, because if they don't, Business B will. So as they do that, they begin this spiral that sets everything in motion, that now A has innovated, and they're more competitive than B, and B has to catch up. And once B catches up and begins to pass, A has to innovate further. This is a natural progression, and in many ways, it's a good thing. It's how we've gotten all the wonderful shit we have in our world. But at some point, if you're doing it with automation and eliminating and leaning out jobs, you start to affect the consumer. Now you've got to do something to resurrect the consumer. And maybe, just maybe, if it's done right, there's a way to unleash human potential with it. Maybe there isn't. We'll only know as we see things unfurl. But I think it's the way the wind's blowing, whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not. Anyway, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, consider supporting us by joining the Member Support Brigade. You can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and kicking, cl kicking on, clicking on members to learn more. You'll see how to sign up there. You'll see all the companies you get discounts for. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and uh, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, you all do qualify for a discount if you email me with uh, TSPC service discount in the subject line. And the MSB guys... For those of you who haven't checked it out, do me a favor. Go check it out. Just see if it makes sense for you. You, you, you pay 50 bucks a year or five bucks a month, or you get the discount if you're a first responder or a paramedic, EMT, you know, those type of things. Um, then there's over 60 companies. You can look at the list of them there. You get discounts from. You do business with us four to six of them a year. You probably get your money back and you're supporting the show. And then you get all the other stuff basically for free. So consider that. The other thing to do is consider doing your shopping at tspaz.com. I don't have a tspaz item of the day for you today. But if you're going to shop on Amazon, just go to tspaz.com. Just go there and then shop on Amazon. Buy whatever you're going to buy. I heard my guy today bought a bunch of like reams of paper for his office. And guess what? We got credit for it. It didn't cost him any more money. It didn't take him any more time. Um, but he supported the show because he likes the show and the support we give him with our content. So that's how T-SPAS works, tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. I am really jazzed about our song of the day. This comes from Brian. Um, he suggested that I play the song Pushing Up Daisies by Garth Brooks. 
Now, I had never actually heard this song before. It was on the album Scarecrow. And uh, by the time that album came out, I was really kind of out of the whole getting every new song as it came out thing. I'd become an old fart and was listening to music that was 10 years old or older at the point. You guys know me just listening to what I play. Occasionally I play some stuff that's, you know, from 15 years ago and I call it a new song. Um, I play a lot of shit that's from like 1980, 1975, 1969, 1982. Um, you know, my core of music was from the mid 80s and living in my little small town, we were playing music from the 70s driving around in our beat up jalopy cars. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's my world for music. So I just never heard this song, but man, it fits so much with what I talk about. I talk about making the most of your life because one day you're going to die. You're going to die. You are going to die. Okay? It's not if you die. It's when you die. There is no human being yet that we know of who has cracked the code of not dying. None of us like to think about it because it's an unpleasant thought, dying. And there's many gruesome ways. There's peaceful ways to go, too, but there's some pretty horrible ways to go. And no matter what anybody thinks about afterlife, nobody seems ready to jump in the box. And there's good reason for that. But we all have to come to the, the fatalistic understanding that one day our heart will cease to beat, our brain will c- cease to, to pass you know, electrical impulses, and our body will begin to rot. And they'll either embalm us so it doesn't, which seems wholly unnatural to me, or they'll cremate us. Or if we're lucky, maybe we'll just be buried and let the, the, the soil and uh, earthworms and organisms do what needs to be done to return our body to the earth. Um, but that'll happen. And when it does, whether on a stone somewhere or whether in an obituary or whatever, someplace our name will be, and you'll see two years and a dash in the middle. And I've been telling that story for a long time. See, I, I heard that first in 1990 when I finally got stationed. Actually, it would have been 91, 1991, when I finally got stationed at my first permanent duty station in Panama after... Uh, the Gulf War was over and all of that stuff, and I'd gotten done with jump school, and I finally went to Panama to my first permanent duty station. I've been there like a week, and the captain was leaving the company. I didn't even really know who he was yet, because like, there was no reason to even bother telling me all about the commander, because he was leaving and we were getting a new commander. But you have a ceremony when one commander leaves and another commander comes on board. And... He stood in front of that formation. You could tell that the men that had been in that company a while loved him. They were not happy to see him go. And one of the things he said was, men, one day you'll die. And they'll put a stone over your head, and they'll put a, two dates on it, and they'll put a, a, he called it a hyphen. He said, there'll be a hyphen in between. And he said, that hyphen is you. I would have been 18 years old, I guess, at the time. I've never forgot it. I'm in my 40s now. And I still remember that day and hearing those words and them going to my heart and saying, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something with my dash. I'm going to do something with my hyphen. This song kind of brings that up. And I, I can't believe I've never heard this song. There's quite a few different ways it comes at this. But here's, here's one stanza. What's more important is the time that is known in that little dash They're in between. That little dash, they're in between. In fact, let me read the whole chorus to you. There are two dates in time that they'll carve on your stone. 
and everyone knows what they mean. What's more important is the time that is known in that little dash there in between, that little dash there in between. The day you're born and the day you die don't really mean shit. What you do with the dash is what matters. And this is the final stanza in the song before they repeat the chorus. My mother died, but somehow she keeps living. She'll never cease to amaze me. Now my dad turns his back on each day that he is given because he'd rather be pushing up daisies. Since mom died, dad just doesn't really care for life anymore. I know there's some of you guys out there in that position because that other person has you know, gone away because they've been taken by death or just because they've gone away. I, I think it's it's a huge mistake. It's a massive mistake. No matter what comes in your life, if you can fog a mirror, if you have an opportunity to keep living, you need to keep working on that dash. Hope you enjoy that. Hope it kind of gets reinforced as you listen to the song. Thanks for sending it in to me. Remember, if you have a song you'd like to hear me play at the end of the show, tell me about it. I won't promise to play them all, but I'll play some of them. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes I tell you the way that I feel. I swear that I'm going crazy. Keep telling myself it ain't that big a deal. It's better than pushing up daisies. So close it actually grazed me I bled the blood and I felt the cold shiver God only knows how he said There's two nights of time and they'll carve on the snow And everyone knows what they need What's more important is the time that is known Sometimes my heart, it betrays me So I draw my sword for to fight my love Without a whisper, she slays me Pushing up day.